Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Washington and its allies are convinced Vladimir Putin will invade Ukraine as Moscow ramps up cyber attacks. Russian separatists increase shelling in eastern Ukraine and stage baseless disinformation efforts, accusing Ukrainians of committing atrocities against ethnic Russians. All that means more potential shocks to the global economy that's already faced rising energy and labor costs, as well as supply chain problems. But the largest war in Europe since World War II could also mean higher defense spending. And the Biden administration is poised to request, uh, according to news reports, $773 billion for defense in its 23 budget submission expected next month. Meanwhile, the COVID pandemic appears to be receding as nations, states and municipalities ease mask and travel mandates. Uh, This as reports that Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth has contracted COVID and is suffering mild symptoms. We wish her a very speedy recovery. Still, the COVID pandemic has killed at least 935,000 Americans and some 5.9 million worldwide. Airbus and MTU reported earnings as Dassault, Talos, and other leading firms prepare to report week after next as worries mount that the French, German, Spanish SCAF fighter program may be on the verge of unraveling. The Singapore Air Show convened in person last week and FAA Administrator Steve Dixon announced his retirement. Joining us to discuss all this and more, as they do each week, are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm agency partners in London, and our special Venetian correspondent live from the Arsenale in uh, Venice is Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Everybody, welcome back to the program. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks very much indeed, Vago. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on and greetings from Venice, Vago. <laughs> yes, in the immortal words of D.H. Lawrence, right? Uh, streets full of water, please advise. <laughs> exactly. Yes, it's, uh, it is one of those classic places that people think is always about to finally flood and go under, but uh, it's been centuries into that, so it's looking pretty good. <laughs> it's, it's, look, it's looking pretty good, and we look for uh, day, uh, regular updates uh, from you on that. Uh, Richard, and it's terrific that you're doing the show from the Arsenal, so we appreciate that. Uh, and before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, and check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters each week, and the downlink with our contributing editor. Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Ron, uh, start us off uh, another uh, volatile week. Uh, Investors are trying to game what a war uh, in Europe is going to look like. Energy prices have been rising, so the market has been pricing some of that uh, in, but there are concerns that that oil prices uh, could go uh, further up. Indeed, Russia is pretty expert, um, as a lot of uh, petrostates are at manipulating uh, global markets, uh, and could could also be very good for uh, Gulf states in the near uh, uh, and the long term. Uh, but although Moscow recently struck a $120 billion energy deal with the Chinese, that's expected to insulate them from shocks. Um, how, how is, I want to get your sense uh, from all of you on this, on uh, how an anticipated war uh, is likely 
what are the economic impacts, especially for the and and what it means for the aerospace and defense group in particular? Go ahead, Ron. Yeah. So um, just looking at the, the the metrics we look at each week, um, you know, interest rates were hovering around two percent, just a smidge below. Um, that didn't change too much during the week. Oil prices were bouncing around, but they're close to a hundred um, across the different classes of oil, maybe ninety five dollars a barrel, something something like that. And then, and then if you look at the performance of uh, our group, um, the, the S&P uh, was uh, on the week down about a percent and a half and you know, aerospace and defense was hovering around in line with the S&P. Some things did a little better, some did a little worse. I would say the champion for volatility for the week was Virgin Galactic. Uh, Virgin Galactic shares at one point were up 30%, but they ended the week where they started the week. Uh, and that blast off in the shares and then kind of a quick um, splashdown uh, was all related to them making an announcement that they were going to open you know, ticket sales for 450K per ride. Um, and anyway, so uh, that, that, that's kind of where we are. Um, <clears throat> my sense is the investment community is probably more focused on what the Fed's going to do than what Vladimir Putin's going to do. Um, and we're, you know, the B of A um, economists said, hey, they were expecting the Fed to do seven uh, 25 basis points rises in interest rates. Uh, I think JP Morgan came out late in the week saying they expected the Fed to do nine. Uh, so the, there's a building drumbeat that the, 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 there's not going to be a soft landing. That's going to be more of a hard landing because of what's what's going on with uh, uh, with inflation. And then, you know, specifically on A&D, you know, Boeing came out and said, hey, you know what, if there's um, um, uh, war in Eastern Europe, that that won't be good for air travel and um, their business in the region. That's probably obvious. Uh, and then more specifically for the U.S. defense names, I mean, it just, I think it really gets at, you know, will this, you know, bolster uh, A, the defense budget itself, uh, and then B, um, in terms of foreign military sales into Eastern Europe, um, you know, just this week, and maybe it was coincidence, um, the State Department approved a possible $6 billion uh, military sale to Poland. I know that had been in the works for a while, so so who knows? It just could have been, you know, uh, just a coincidence. But uh, I think that's 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 where the street is. Um, and uh, right, I mean, uh, Russians are big titanium uh, suppliers. Right in 2014, a lot of the major uh, aerospace names did pressure the administration to go easy on uh, post Crimea invasion, uh, in part to be able to access that and 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 continue. Uh, that, that, obviously, that's actually, that's actually a great point. I mean, if you look at where titanium comes from, it's not just Russia. Uh, if you look at you know kind of the world supply of titanium and you look at what was the Soviet Union, a lot of it comes from Russia and its satellite countries. Um, and then, you know, some for the U.S. comes from Japan. But right now, the U.S. has no um, internal capacity to do titanium sponge. All our titanium sponge is imported from somewhere. Um, the last titanium sponge facility was run by Timet uh, and they shut that down, I think, about two years ago. So there's no... Uh, U.S. domestic titanium sponge capability today. Uh, I, I love that about the Cold War, that we were getting titanium from uh, the Soviet Union in order to build uh, weapons that we would use against the Soviet Union. And we were getting titanium and using it for things like SR-71, where the Russians themselves weren't using it as much, although although they did some spectacular titanium projects like the Alpha-class submarine and other submarine hulls, which is still sort of staggering. Um, getting back on track, Sash, uh, give us your uh, European sense. Uh, you are much closer to this potential conflagration uh, than we are. Actually, both of you <laughs> now are well played, uh, Richard, moving toward the front, uh, as always. Um, 
you know, what, what's your sense on how this plays out, what it means uh, for the group? You know, we've been talking about defense budgets going up. We're going to bring Ron in on this $773 billion Biden figure uh, in a moment, but wanted to get your sense on, you know, how much the market has already priced in, how much more the market uh, may price in, and, and what you think you're, you're beginning to see as second and third order shocks as you think through what's going to happen and how it might happen. Yeah, so it, it was interesting last week. Um, the the, the uh, European sector, European markets definitely bounced around. There was there was a you know, fair amount of volatility, um, but there was no great, uh, you know, discrimination um, military versus civil uh, last week. Um, civil uh, was more results dependent. So MTU Aero engines. I'll come back to it in a second. Actually, had a had a very good week. Um, uh, up six seven percent, and Airbus sort of came off a bit. Airbus, interestingly, asked about titanium, said not seeing any shortages, don't expect to see any shortages. I do wonder whether, you know, the old joke was that um, uh, you know capitalism would, uh, would 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 sell the rope that would be used to hang them, and actually, turns out former communism is not too far behind. Uh, that you know the commercial relationships. Uh, involved in making sure the the Russian titanium uh, industry uh, you know keep, keeps on churning the stuff out uh, is probably as important for the um, uh, for the Russians, particularly if they want to get the MS twenty uh, one ever, ever to fly. Um, interestingly, we didn't have any new inquiries about Ukraine and the war last week. Uh, they were all about um, is the pandemic winding down? Of you, yep, it is. And what are the impacts of uh, supply chain problems across the uh, the sector, one of which, or some of which, are a, a a function of inflation, but others of which are a function of just uh, a system that has been uh, where too much capacity was taken out uh, in the last two years, and it just can't go back anytime soon. So it's been very interesting. You know, I didn't think that the uh, it's entirely possible we will see a uh, you know a horrible lurch down if, when, as the Russians do in. Uh, um, invade the Ukraine, but uh, it's not something that's been worrying investors any more than usual this week. Richard, uh, your your sense on how all of this play out? Because we're going to talk in a second about uh, Airbus, and uh, you know, I want to bring uh, Embraer uh, into the conversation as well, and, and more specific uh, M- MTU results and, and what we should we should be looking uh, a little bit on expectations uh, from other firms. But want to get your sense on how you think this is going to play out and the impact it's going to have. Potentially, yeah. Um, first of all, I, I, everyone's making Soviet Union comparisons. I think that's dead right. You know, let's not forget the dynamics. They were very happy to sell us the machinery needed and the raw materials needed to create a uh, you know strong defense, and they'll be doing the same thing now because, frankly, their economy is useless without raw materials. And most importantly, of course, Putin is backed up by the kind of oligarchs who have their finger on the, you know, the revenue stream associated with raw materials and nothing else. I mean, it's a massive country with a very impressive military, but its economy is the size of Spain's. And it's an economy purely predicated upon selling products like titanium. Uh, Looking at it the other direction, Sash mentions the MS-21. Pause for a moment to remember the great days of Russia's aerospace establishment integration into the Western aerospace ecosystem. It lasted a few decades. And there were even talks of, you know, selling the MS-21 to markets outside of what has become Soviet Union 
you know, second time, only more farcical. Um, that's all dead. Like, in other words, whatever they think they're spooling up for in the commercial aero world, it, it, it's for their own ecosystem and nothing more. The idea that any kind of free market, real world airline would say, oh, great idea. An airline built, airliner built under the Putin five-year plan. We can be sure of its asset values and its product support. That's a joke now. So that's all dead. It's kind of tragic. And I hope it one day comes back because they've got really great engineering, right? And in terms of military equipment, I think what we're seeing is the death of all but the most fervent client states. I think it's pretty clear, given what's going on, you know, with China effectively getting behind Putin, um, the idea that, say, India would resume being the biggest single market for exported Russian combat aircraft, that might be gradually fading, too. And that was a big export earner for their aerospace establishment. So you can't help but think that this isn't one of those moments where it's the future kind of looks like the CATS Act, you know, countering America's adversaries through Sanctions Act. And they're declared to be beyond the pale in terms of the global aerospace uh, market. I want to I want to get to earnings uh, in a minute, but I want to just sort of build on uh, cause and effect. We've been talking about defense spending going up on this program uh, for some weeks, uh, you know, depending on what the Russians do. You know, this sort of sense uh, that uh, the Washington uh, thought leaders uh, are, are adopting is that it that if it's short of an invasion and we go back to normal and we depressurize the situation, it's unlikely that defense spending will go up meaningfully. But in the event that there is a shooting war, it's likely to go up. I know, Sash, you're more on the side. Either way, this goes up because I think people see what's at stake uh, and what could happen. Ron, $773 billion for U.S. defense. Mike Stone uh, of Reuters reporting that uh, figure. How's the market greeting that news and what do you think uh, that it means? Because for some, it's not that much. You know, They wanted the administration to be a lot more robust than the number that they were going to ask for. Uh, although now I think it does set the stage for Congress to plus it up, right? Even, even more than that uh, figure ultimately. Yeah. I mean, it's, if you think about what the street has been, been, been contemplating since the, you know, the administration got elected, uh, many investors I, I spoke to after the election were expecting um, over call it a three to four year period, a decline in defense spending of, you know, on the order of call it anywhere between, you know, 20 to 30% in a traditional defense downturn. So be it that we're not in a traditional downturn and be it that this number, I think greater than anything the market's expecting. So, I mean, you haven't seen much of a reaction out of the market yet, but let's just be clear. If you kind of parse back the numbers, the request for, you know, fiscal 22, right, was 714 billion, correct me if I'm wrong, plus or minus a billion. Um, and if, if you were gonna have a flat ask year on year and you adjusted it for inflation, that would put you at 740 billion. Um, and then the thinking is, right, maybe, and then you'd get Congress to plus up off of 740 billion, which could put you maybe at 770 billion. If the starting ask is 770 billion plus, and then you get plus ups from there, that's far better than what I think anybody has would be expecting. In fact, I mean, that would put you with the plus ups. I mean, think about it. If, if the enacted number this year ends up being called 735, that 773 number is about 5% growth. So that's your inflation adjusted number right there. Boom. And then if Congress pluses that up another couple percent or more, call it anywhere from three to 5%. Um, that is nominal growth. That's somewhere from 
call it seven to ten percent, our real growth that's anywhere from three to five percent. That's better than I think anybody was expecting. So if that's indeed how it plays out, that's that's pretty bullish for the sector. And um, you, so I, I, I forgot to ask you this, so I'll just sandwich this in before um, I go to uh, Sasha and, and to Richard. Um, F-35 and some Lockheed news flow that you found particularly interesting. Yeah, the logistics contract for the F-35 got upsized pretty pretty meaningfully um, by, by four and a half fold. So there was a, you know, uh, yeah. Every day the DOD releases its, its contracts and they released a modified contract on F-35 logistics that went from something like, uh, if I remember correctly, called about a $500 million number up to two and a half billion. It's a big number, a big change. Um, and we're just kind of, you know, peeling back the onion on that now over what time frame, what's going on here. But I think it's notable that that, that support work contract for Lockheed on the F-35 did get up Sash, uh, from a defense spending perspective, um, any sort of new signs uh, on behalf of Europeans, any, any new rhetoric that you think is particularly interesting as we um, sort of go into an end game and, and we have nations, whether it's the UK or others, uh, telling its citizens to get out of Ukraine expecting uh, an invasion? Uh, look, defense spending, um, you know, the budget numbers will way lag anything that's going on now. Um, you know, most nations will think about their defense spending for, I mean, next year is, is already in, you know, those budgets are done. Countries will think about the longer term ramifications. For example, you know, there's beginning to be talk in the UK about whether the, the whole integrated review was basically a waste of time because we never expected this sort of conflict in, in the, uh, the Baltics and Eastern Europe to occur so quickly. So, you know, that might, you know, that might have to be rewritten in its entirety. But the, the, the budgetary process will lag. Um, what countries are starting to do. So, you know, m- small details, the UK is sending effectively a, a, uh, the better part of a totally new battle group out to Estonia. Um, that will double UK forces there. It, that's actually a surprising because it's armoured. It's a surprisingly big slice of the, the UK's rather small armoured uh, armored force at the moment. Uh, we're, you know, we're seeing uh, talk about uh, more NATO battle groups being sent to places like Romania uh, so that that would become a fifth standing uh, role. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think that there's a generally a realization in uh, Europe that Russia is a, you know, is a very, very serious threat. And there is also a concern that although the Biden administration is very supportive, the next administration may not be. And hence, you know, the, the longer term uh, budgetary um, issues are very, very positive in Europe. But I don't think we're going to see any numbers. I think we may not see any numbers for 18 months. Uh, it won't stop countries from changing what they spend within the current budget structure. Um, and it's one of the reasons why we are, we are very, very positive about European defense stocks. Uh, Richard, your sense on, uh, on what you're seeing and how you think it plays out and what 773 as well as uh, the new service contract and anything else uh, means in, in your reading of these tea leaves. It looks like there's some potential upward pressure just because you're getting into that dynamic where, you know, you've got a democratic government, a president, um, and you've got probably a, you know, Senate and a, possibly a House or maybe the other way around that could be Republican in the end of this year. And you know, the consequences, I think, are, are, well, very good for defense because you're going to have everybody trying to paint the president as slightly weak on defense, et cetera, et cetera, very weak on defense. And you've got these rather frightening circumstances for the electorate 
So, you know, we've got a record RDT&E budget of 105. I can imagine, I can easily see a scenario where that gets to 110. I could see procurement getting healthfully above 150 a year. So from an investment account standpoint, I think there's going to be upward pressure due to both the political dynamic and the geopolitical circumstances. Richard, I'm cognizant how short you are uh, on time. Uh, and so wanted to uh, steer the conversation to uh, both uh, Airbus results uh, and uh, what uh, they mean. Uh, Sash, why don't you start us off? You put a great report out on Airbus uh, results. Uh, Ron mentioned it as well. MTU also uh, reported, we can talk about Dassault and Talos later, even though you put a, a strategy note on, on Dassault, even though they're not reporting until the third or the fourth or something like that, along with Talos. Um, and then, of course, there is some interesting Embraer news uh, as well. Why don't you start us off uh, on that, and then we can get uh, Richard's takeaway uh, on, on Airbus, uh, as well as his note on the outlook for the SCAF program, which is which is not entirely uh, 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 positive. And then Richard can bail, and then we can uh, go over to you, Ron, as I think you're a little bit easier on time. Go ahead, Sash. Airbus, the, the numbers were good. Um, actually, the shares came off a bit. They've been very, very strong in the last six, nine months or so. And they didn't have that much new to say that was going to get a lot of analysts going and, and increasing their forecasts. But if you look at... Um, you know, the positive surprises, they generated about a billion more cash um, uh, than, uh, you know, than they had guided and people had expected. So, you know, always worth remembering when it comes to the next development of a civil aircraft, Airbus starts from 8 billion euros of net cash, real net cash. Um, they've got bigger pockets than, than, than Boeing has. Um, other things that were, uh, I think, very, very interesting was that they... Um, they're forecasting about a 20% increase in production this year, up to 700 and, uh, 720 uh, aircraft. Um, and the mix is going to get better because there's going to be more A321s. So, the, you know, the, the company is, is working very, very, uh, working very, very well. They talked with, a, you know, a lot about the, you know, the pitfalls and the problems and the, the issues that they are concerned about. There are issues in terms of, of the supply chain, clearly. Um, in, you know, inflation is quite hard to quantify, but may well be a, uh, an issue there. And the rate ramp is going to be challenging. But it seems to me that they're, you know, they're in a fairly comfortable position at the moment. Uh, looking further out, what I was fascinating was they clearly see Boeing as steel being there. And the two areas that they highlighted, one was near-term pricing of orders for wide bodies. They're concerned that, let's say that they've got 15, 20% of deliveries for 2023 still unconfirmed and therefore up, up for grabs, particularly A330s. They're worried that, Airbus, that, sorry, that Boeing is going to be really aggressive on pricing either for 787s, although I, you know, they've got to sort that out first, but well, certainly for 777s and 767 freighters. Uh, and that could make life difficult for them. And then in the, in the uh, even longer term, Airbus is clearly uh, aware that Boeing is going to, or, and thinks Boeing is going to launch a new narrow body. Uh, they talked about a new program uh, and they said, when that happens, Airbus's R&D will go up. And the implication is will go up by a great deal, you know, many billions um, over, uh, you know, uh, over several years. So they're keeping their powder dry. They've got to be able to, to respond as and when they need to. Um, and that, that, you know, that was a that was a very, very interesting thing. One other point, defense, 
the, the Airbus board has clearly required the Airbus executive to look at the future of their defence business. Um, it's a it's not quite a rump business, but it's clearly a smaller, much less important business in commercial aerospace. Our view is that actually it's a franchise business that they have to keep uh, holding. But I, you know, there, there's been some very interesting reporting this week that suggests that the uh, Airbus board is quite uncomfortable with defence in terms of its ESG implications and in terms of the uh, the risks that they have to take and 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 so forth. Airbus management are, you know, said that they they will look at individual business lines, um, but. Uh, you know, they're not looking at sort of divesting or spinning off the whole of the defence business. But this is a very, very interesting situation for Europe's largest aerospace and defence company. And uh, your Dassault note? Yeah, OK. I mean, we, we put a note out this week, um, uh, really big revisions to our forecasts on Dassault as a result of the contracts for Indonesia for, for up to 42 Rafales, United Arab Emirates for up to 80. Uh, and it looks like uh, the Iraqis uh, might buy 36 aircraft as well. Uh, I mean, you know, Rafale, as we've discussed in the, in the last couple of months, is really on a roll at the moment. Um, what are the two effects here that we see? One is that there is a, an increasing bullishness in France that they do not need Germany uh, to make to make the SCAF program work. They could do SCAF as effectively a, a, a Franco-French program. Um, they've got the customer base. They've shown an ability to migrate customers from Mirage 2000 to Rafale. They can do it again, some people believe in France, from uh, Rafale to SCAF. And Germany makes exports really difficult, as you know, Richard has uh, you know, made abundantly clear. So that was the first issue. And the second issue is that is just going to generate huge amounts of cash over the next couple of years because the incoming advances for their big programs are far greater than, than the, uh, the, the outflows for the programs that are maturing. So we forecast again to have nearly 10 billion of net cash by, uh, by 2025. What do you do with that? They don't really want to do share buybacks um, because uh, all that does is to sort of concentrate the shares uh, owned by the Dassault family and the French government. We think they may well decide to buy a majority shareholding in Talis. They currently have a 25% shareholding in, in Talis and become the French defence company. You know, no, no debate about it whatsoever at that stage. That would be fascinating. It would be difficult for the French government to uh, cope with. But given that, as we've argued along, all along, Dassault is France, France is Dassault, certainly when it comes to the export market. You know, you cannot rule that out. Uh, and I want to want to point out uh, to our audience that uh, that uh, Sasha is not doing amateur banking. He is precluded from doing that sort of thing under uh, UK securities law. This is an objective uh, take uh, on on your part about where where the market uh, uh, stands and and the tea leaves are. And I would agree with that analysis. By the way, Sash, one hundred percent. I think that this does set the deck for the company uh, to achieve the position ultimately that the French government also would like to see it uh, uh, to see it hold even even though there are a little bit of misgivings especially on the uniform side uh, sometimes where they feel like they are they are manhandled by a, a company uh, that national industrial strategy leaves them uh, to, to deal with and to deal with sometimes roughly right trying to get Dassault to increase its rate Dassault is not going to increase its rate no matter what the DGA or anybody has to say about it if, if they think that whatever the rate they're at is, is, is where they should be for commercial reasons. Richard, um, I know your time is, is short. Uh, walk us through Airbus results. Uh, walk us through your uh, thoughtful uh, piece in foreign policy uh, on uh, Dassault and the SCAF program. 
and also your take on Embraer, because we should talk about the E2-175 uh, program uh, as, as well. Go ahead. Lots to discuss. You know, first of all, I completely agree with Sash. You know, the mix from the standpoint of Airbus output, it's only going to get better as the, you know, Hamburg 321 Neo output line gets put into full gear sometime next year. You know, it's been a long road getting back to the kind of full volumes they talk about. But that's the only really supply constrained jetliner on the market these days. And once they can start spitting them out, that's if they can get the, you know, the, the supplier base up and running. That's how they get to rate 70. I mean, it's the 321 Neo and it has been for some time. And as soon as that thing turns fully profitable, yeah, that's when they start really getting some cash in. I think uh, Sasha's point about dry powder being needed is right, but we're all fearful about Boeing actually doing anything. So it could be they don't need that dry powder, but I guess I understand completely the reason for having it. And we all want Boeing to do something. So uh, let's hope the world does the right thing together and comes up with new generations of jets for that important and fast growing middle market. Um, in terms of DSO, again, boy, a complete agreement with Sash. And, you know, the point of my article on foreign policy was that the great paradox is the more successful Raphael gets, the stupider SCAF looks, you know, in terms of having the Germans involved when it's obvious that the appeal of the Raphael and its successor products will be as, well, the, the great insurance policy for so much of the world's export markets. You know, you want a second source, you want somebody who will always let you use it and support it. And that's not the case with Germany for the simple reason that they have human rights considerations as a big part of their defense sales posture. And uh, that point that Sash made also yeah, exactly right about, well, sovereignty and the French state industrial policy, dead right. You know, whatever debate there has been in, in France about not funding a next generation product, that, that should go away. They're really good at maintaining that level of industrial sovereignty and industrial policy. It, why not? Uh, as for uh, Embraer, yeah, some good news this week with the 175 sale, but more importantly, the final reconfiguration of the KC390 co contract, there was talk of it being knocked down to, I think, 14 or 15 jets from 28, and that would have been catastrophic. Uh, but they seem to stabilize it at 22, and that makes it, uh, well, a more firm program. So some good news, uh, definitely, this week. Um, let me ask uh, one uh, quick industrial-based question and then uh, let, you, let you go, obviously, because you're taking time away from your family to spend it with us. Um, does... You know, France has gotten crosswise uh, in an Airbus context, in various other contexts, for uh, preserving its capability from the perception of its other partners at the ex at the expense of their capabilities. Does this drive France to maintain that completely fully featured defense industrial base? Uh, that on something like Rafale, Everything on there's nothing on that jet that allows the United States to stop its export anywhere. Indeed, there's nothing on that jet that allows the Germans to stop it from being exported anywhere. Um, weapons, it's a little bit of a different issue, uh, but not much because most of those weapons development uh, de developments are happening with the UK, which has a tendency of seeing life the same way. Y your sense on what that means for the broader sort of French industrial base and whether or not that takes pressure off to consolidate them the way uh, in a pan-European fashion and consequently whether or not that causes actually bigger problems for France as, as everybody in Europe sort of recognizes, hey, these guys are going to keep all of their capability, right? I mean, every time France talks about European sovereignty, the concern everybody else has 
is that that means by French, not necessarily by European. Yeah, that's exactly right. And of course, that was one of the another another seed of Scaff's imminent doom. You know, I mean, who's going to do who's going to be the prime on the engine and control almost all of the engine? I'm pretty sure it's Saffron. Who's going to be the prime on the radar and control an awful lot of it and the EW system? Yeah, it's going to be Talos. And, you know, you look up and down from you know, the smaller but mid-sized companies or, or mid-sized companies, you know, the Latico Airs of the world and whatever else. It was pretty clear they were going to benefit too. And there wasn't a lot that Germany could get out of it, all in exchange for funding, like what, 40, 50% of it? I mean, that was another reason I thought this thing was sort of destined to collapse and still do think that. And yeah, you're exactly right. You know, MBDA, you know, the that missiles JV, and of course, Airbus and of course Airbus helicopters were all examples of pan-European JVs, but from a military standpoint, uh, why should they? And indeed, all of those supplier companies, why should they? Why wouldn't they become global centers of excellence in production and their way of dealing with the world is simply to export to it? It seems to work very well for them. Will it one day get them in trouble when the rest of the world pools its resources? Maybe, but they're playing this so well right now that, frankly, if I were them, I'd stay the course. Uh, and I want to say, I, I'm not uh, trying to say what I was saying from an anti-French standpoint. Rather, it is a nation that's always had industrial strategy at the heart of most of what it does. And it does take a, it tends to take a much longer term view on capabilities, uh, unfortunately, than, than uh, some of its uh, allies and partners, the UK being uh, a good example, right? UK was looking to deliver capability quickly, willing to sacrifice its own industrial capability for that capability, and now recognizing that the maintenance of those capabilities is, is, is something uh, that, is, that is dicier and a little bit harder. And I'll come back to Sash on that in a minute. Uh, Richard, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back on again next week. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much, Vago. And I'll give your regards to the Arsenale. Uh, grazie mille. Ciao. <laughs> Bye-bye. Buonasera. Uh, so, um, Ron, uh, take it away. want to get your take uh, and sense on uh, the Airbus and the Ember uh, news. And, and thanks very much for being so patient. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, if, you, if you look at the Singapore Air Show broadly, just from an order perspective compared to previous air shows, it was, it was pretty darn disappointing. Right. I, I think you can give Boeing credit for two triple seven freighters that went to Western Global Services or whoever they are. Uh, and then I think Airbus got what 14 A350 freighters to Singapore, which is uh, I think it's Singapore. If Sash, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and that's you know good news for that freighter, right? Because it's just gaining momentum now. And then I don't know if it was at the air show, but it was in the air show time frame. JetBlue extended out their order to up to 100 uh, A220-300s, and they ordered 30 more. And uh, Aviation Capital Group um, firmed up their order for 20 a 220 So really the, the big star, if you will, of the show or the big star of the week was the A220 for you know, getting you know, 50 firm orders, um, which uh, it's maybe a little unexpected, but whatever, it was the one that I think that did it. On Embraer, the, the news is, 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 is interesting, right? I mean, the, the E2... 175, you know, is uh, was is was the replacement for the E1 170 and E1 175. Um, it's the the largely re-engined variant of the airplane, re-engined with uh, you know a, a GTF variant. Um, and the, the the airplane was betting that you'd see scope causes uh, loosen enough uh, in North America to allow the in the U.S. I should say. Um, 
to allow the airplane to operate. And the, the place where it rubbed up against scope was just an aircraft weight and the engines weigh a little bit more. So the airplane relative to its predecessor was a little heavier. Um, you know, the engines have a bigger bypass register. There's bigger, bigger machines, uh, more metal, more weight. Um, and they went over the scope clause weight and they haven't seen that relax. So Embraer, I think, you know, it was late Friday, came out of a board meeting saying that they are pushing out the program or delaying the development by three years. Um, depending on how you want to interpret that, that, that seems, seems like, sounds like they're just canceling the program that they're, you know, that, 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 you know, it's, you know, you don't see these things get delayed like that and, you know, deferring resources someplace else. Now, I think if you stand back and look at it, you know, in, in North America is, you know, Who's selling regional jets? Well, nobody, just Embraer. So is there a market for the E1s in North America, particularly the E1-175? Yes. Will they continue to sell those in North America? Yes, they will. In other parts of the world, probably, uh, if they want that size airplane. And then I think the other thing, another takeaway from this is um, they have discussed, I think, pretty, pretty convincingly that they're getting closer to launching a new turboprop, a new 70-seat turboprop, presumably. Um, because not much has gone on in the turboprop market uh, from a new product development point of view for a very long time. Uh, and, you know, my sense is probably, and this is just my interpretation, that their board was saying, hey, you know, why throw money at this thing if we're not even sure we can sell it in our biggest market? Let's pivot towards this other aircraft that, you know, for along many metrics might have a meaningful market. So that, that, that's my takeaway. And uh, on Airbus results more more uh, broadly, thanks very much, by the way, you jumped me on the uh, Singapore uh, results, right? And I think Eddie Hod ordered some A350Fs, uh, if, I, if I recall last week as well, but just sort of give us sort of more broadly, uh, whether your, your assessment of Airbus is, is sort of in line and consistent with what, what Sash's is. Yeah. So to be clear, I don't, you know, I don't cover Airbus for, for B of A, so this is just Ron's opinion, but yeah, I, I'm, you know, I agree completely with, with Sash. And I mean, what's interesting from, you know, being the, the Boeing guy at B of A, you know, the, you know, the, the issues that are confronting Airbus are very different than the issues that are confronting Boeing, right? Boeing right now really isn't having any supply chain issues about their ramp because they're up to their eyeballs and in, in inventory, right? I mean, they essentially, you know, I kind of frame it this way, a little tongue in cheek, but it's actually kind of true. Boeing essentially has Lufthansa in their inventory, right? So there's no shortage of 737s or 737 parts or anything there's no shortage of seven, eight, seven things floating around in the supply chain. So they, they have the luxury from their poor execution of not having um, you know, a supply chain issue right now. You know, presumably when things ramp, that's something that they'll have to deal with later, where Airbus hasn't had those kind of issues, um, at least you know, clearly not to the, the extent that Boeing has. So you know, you know, that Airbus ramp and you know, dealing with the supply chain and so on and so forth is is, you know, a, a, in a sense, a good problem to have, right? Meaning that they've executed, um, but that's something that they're going to have to navigate sooner than Boeing. Um, and maybe to their advantage, work with supply chains and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and that might put Boeing, you know, on its back foot when it's their turn to do that. Sash? Actually, I've just got something I, I wanted to add to uh, what Ron's saying about Embraer and the, uh, the E2-175, uh, 175, which is that, um, MTU Aero Engines, which is the, the European partner of uh, Pratt & Whitney on the gear turbofan, they clearly don't think that the, um, uh, the, one, the E2175 is being pushed out by three years. They think it's dead. Um, and the reason we can tell that is that they wrote off 80 million euros of capitalized R&D on the, on the specific engine 
uh, application for uh, for the EC175. Um, if they had thought that that was just being pushed out by three years, they wouldn't have written off the whole sum. Um, but but they have done, and uh, that was that. You know, that was a very very interesting. It was actually the, the first indication that uh, you know we 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 had reached a um, uh, such a such a a, a, uh, a terminal point for for the for the, uh, the EC175. And uh, any any thoughts on uh, Ron's take on? Uh, the difference between supply chain challenges between Boeing and Airbus? No, I mean, I think, I think Ron's absolutely got it. I mean, you know, Airbus has got problems or it's got problems of a ramp. Ramps are always difficult. Ramps at a time in the supply chain has been uh, really battered over the last uh, two years are, are doubly so. Um, and, and Airbus always slightly compounds the issue by having multiple final assembly lines. So if you're a supplier for the A320 or the A321neo, you're not delivering to one assembly line globally. You're a set, you're delivering to four. Uh, and there was quite an interesting comment that came out of the Airbus um, results meeting where they said they're now uh, going to make every single one of their A320 sites A321 ready or A321 capable. So rather than assembling all the A321s in Hamburg, they will assemble them in Hamburg, in Tianjin, in Toulouse, in Mobile. Um, so that you know that does make life a bit tougher for the uh, for the suppliers on the other hand uh, you know the suppliers have got a very very healthy program ron i want to uh, bring it to you and maybe uh, end it there steve dixon uh career delta airlines pilot um a couple of years ago at the height of the max uh challenge uh, took over at the faa he said he's going to be uh, stepping down uh just some thoughts on on uh, the man and what he managed to accomplish in what has to be a particularly tough uh, period in FAA history. Yeah, I mean, you know, he came in when um, you know you know it was in 2019, right? When it was a, a very very tough period for the FAA um, for obvious reasons with regard to what happened on the 737 Max, and has you know led the organization through some meaningful changes. And you know, for what we're seeing right now on on 787, uh, you know, just last week, I think it was the. Um, the FAA told Boeing that, you know what, um, you no longer can certify the, the 787s that come off the production line, um, just like you can't on 737s, because we don't have a sense that you have a, um, a, a real replicable program for fixing these planes. So it's, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, under his leadership, the FAA took away from Boeing essentially the production certificate responsibility on their two highest value programs. So that's, that's taking leadership. Um, so I, I think the next question really becomes, um, you know, who, who takes his role? Um, there'll be, you know, I think you framed it in a conversation we had offline, there'll be a new sheriff in town and then how they interact with Boeing. So, you know, on one front um, you'll have a new sheriff in town that will want to, you know, kind of prove their situation uh, and it may or may not be an opportunity for Boeing to uh, improve their relationship with the FAA. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. But it's, it's hard to imagine, given everything that's happened and all the leadership that, that um, Steve led and the changes that he, that, he, that he made, that things will get any easier for, for the Boeing company. So, uh, and, and then there will be a period of the, the, the new leader, you know, they have to you know, settle in the role and so on and so forth. So it can't be great for the 787. And, and, and one point I would add, you know, this past week, um, you know, Airlease reported their numbers and 
they were better than I think people were thinking and stock responded very well. Um, but one point they did make, however, was of the, the 10 787s they're expecting to get this year, um, they're only going to be taking one. Uh, and both United and American Airlines have pushed out their expectations on when the 787s are going to start to you know, start getting delivered again. And, and as that program gets back to normal, um, having a change in leadership at the FAA can't make that easier to happen. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks very much for bringing 787 into it because that was going to be the last question. But let me have a new last question and point it at uh, Sash from, from your standpoint. What is you know, what's, what's the FAA gotten right? What did it get wrong? What are the lessons and, and what does the new administrator have to uh, keep an eye on? The FAA had got so much wrong leading up to the, uh, the MAX crisis because they had devolved all authority uh, or effectively all authority for um, uh, aircraft quality and a huge amount of certification. I think the fact that they're reasserting that and we're, what we're starting to get is a a really disciplined, dispassionate certification process is good. It's going to cause everybody a much tougher time. Airbus will not be able to um, grandfather right. For example, A350 Freighter. A350 Freighter is going to be a brand new aircraft as far as certification is concerned because the fuselage length is different and because there are so many modifications. I think that's a, you know, that's makes sense. That's an obvious thing. It'd be very interesting to see how the certification of the A321 Neo XLR goes as well, just because of the, um, the huge differences uh, between that and a, uh, a an A321 Neo Vanilla or, or Classic, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I think the you know the FAA is is back being a proper regulator now. Um, and you know for those of us who are the flying public, that's a very very healthy thing. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure uh, having you guys on. Hope you guys have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.